Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Women of Golf Show. I'm Ted Odorico, and right alongside, of course, is Legends Tour player and LPGA professional Cindy Miller, and we are the hosts of the Women of Golf Show. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great for this uh, Tuesday morning. It's hard to believe, uh, Cindy, just a couple of days, and we're going to be in the month of June. I don't know where this 2017 is going, but it's certainly going uh, uh, like a, a, a bat out of H. But uh, anyways... Uh, Glad to join me this morning and glad all of you are joining us this morning here on the Women of Golf Show. And let me just, uh, Cindy, before we start, let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live every Tuesdays uh, from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, unless uh, otherwise specified here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Just go to blogtalkradio.com up in the search key, type Women of Golf, and that will take you to the main page. And front and center, of course, will be the live broadcast. Uh, And for some reason, if you can't join us live, just scroll down to the on-demand section and the previously aired shows uh, will be there in their entirety. Uh, Also, um, we're available, we have been available on iTunes.com, but we're also now available on Stitcher.com. So if you go to iTunes.com or Stitcher.com, type in Women of Golf again in the search key and that will take you to the pages there and you can listen to the shows uh, when it's convenient for you if uh, you're somebody that follows either of those networks. Um, anytime you want to speak to Cindy or I or, or any of the guests, we would love to hear from you at uh, area code 347-945-5855 during the live broadcast. You can call in and speak to us. Um, or if you want to email either one of us, you can do so at uh, cindy at cindymillergolf.com or mine is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. We've got a great show uh, this morning, Cindy. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, everything from our biggest influences to uh, our successes and, and some of our failures, of course. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. And then uh, in the second half of the show, Kate Tempesta, who, of course, has been a guest on our show before. Uh, she's the founder, partner, and president of FUN. I like that. And also a member of the LPGA Teacher and Club Professionals, as well as the director of the Junior uh, Golf Program at Montac uh, Downs up in New York City. Uh, great uh, guest she's been on before, as I mentioned. Um, looking forward to uh, talking with her a little bit uh, in the second half. Um, Cindy, I thought this would be kind of a, an, an interesting um, topic for us to discuss this morning because you know being in this profession we we get to uh sort of ride the wave a little bit from time to time you know sometimes we have uh some good days and sometimes we have some bad days and uh but it's always a a learning experience um i want to start off by talking about some of our biggest uh influences uh in our teaching and coaching style so who who was instrumental who was somebody that you maybe admired either growing up or or as you transitioned into your teaching that uh, that sort of influenced you a little bit in your coaching and teaching styles? Uh, Bob Toski for sure. Eddie Bush from Doral. He was uh, a mentor of mine while I was at the University of Miami, as was Bob Toski. And 
and I think two different kinds of people. Eddie Bush was more quiet and shy and introspective, and Bob Toski is um, more bolsterous, I guess you could say, in your face, Mm. doesn't let you get away with anything. But they both really care about their students. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think it's good to have to sort of be well-rounded. For me, it was a little bit different. Um, it was, I guess, more of a personal journey um, in the sense that my father was, was a great influence in me. He always believed in, in um, you know, being sort of a stickler for detail, uh, which can be both a good and bad thing. Um, and I had a lot of other very positive uh, teachers. Uh, I had a great history teacher, Mr. Addison, and I know these are people not in uh, the golf uh, industry per se, but um, these are people that had a, a, a profound influence. I also had a, a math teacher, Mr. Harris, um, who is a, is a public speaker now uh, back up in Canada. And, you know, he really w- was a very positive influence, always was reassuring to his students and always had something positive to say. He was neg- never negative, even when you did wrong in the class. And, and I kind of thought, you know, when I got into whatever career I was going to get into at that time, I always thought to myself, you know, I want to be that, that sort of uh, individual. I want to be somebody that's positive and, and uplifting to uh, whatever area. And when I got into golf, of course, you know, I watched uh, much like you. Uh, I mean, I didn't work with him, but uh, I watched people like Bob Toski and, and uh, David Ledbetter and, of course, Butch Harmon and, and many of the other uh, popular teachers and kind of, you know, pick things that I liked about each of them. Um, you know, David was very, uh, very technical, um, which again can be a good or bad thing. Um, and Butch was a little bit more, you know, tell it like it is. He was in your face. Um, and I know, but at the same time, he, he had a certain amount of, uh, compassion, if you will. But those were some of the, 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 the influences in my life. And obviously, particularly my father was, a, was a great influence very early on. He always believed in no matter what you want to do, as long as you give it your, your hundred percent. Um, then you're going to be successful. So those are some of the, the um, individuals that were, were – and as far as actual teaching styles and, and coaching, uh, I, again, I think it was just people along my life that I met that had um, certain characteristics that I sort of adopted and made – and just, you know, with a little massaging, made it my own. So I think that would be some of my uh, biggest influence. Cindy, is there anybody in the business um, – uh, or, or one sort of swing theory that you kind of uh, adhere to, or do you sort of uh, kind of be a student of all sorts of swing theories or, or approaches to the game and then just sort of work based on what's best for that particular student? How do, you, how do you approach it from that standpoint? I don't know that I believe in one particular theory, but I believe that the biggest um, bang you can get for your buck is impact position. So if the ball Mm -hmm. goes crooked, there's a reason. And, again, I want to bring the club face back to square, and I want to do that the easiest, simplest way possible. So I would Mm -hmm. say that I am not a rotator and a rock and block person. I'm more um, vertical and up and down rather than rotating. I don't think you need to put a horizontal move in a vertical motion. So I would steer away right. from turning and twisting and rotating and, and be more, you know, Freddie Couples-like, stand up, swing it, and hit it. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know it, it, that's interesting because I, I'm very similar. I'm, I'm a tall player, so I, you know I'm six foot four, and uh, have very long legs. So a lot of you know my height, uh, just by by nature of that, sort of forces me into a more of a, a, a an upright uh, swing. But um, you know, obviously, I, I've worked with students that have a much shorter in stature, and that's not always been conducive for them. They they have to go a little bit more around just because of the shape and the size that they are. And, and I'm, I'm talking about somebody that's very short. Um, but you're right. I, I'm kind of the same way as you. I don't, I don't believe in a lot of different swing theories. I think there's, uh, you know, arguments for all of them, I think. But th th I think you have to be knowledgeable about what's out there um, because you're going to be faced with questions, I'm sure, from students that come to you and say, um, you know, what do you think of this? Uh, you know, I, I read up a lot about the stack and tilt. What do you think about that? So I think you have to be knowledgeable about it, but I don't think you have to necessarily adopt it as part of your, your swing theory or, or your philosophy, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things, Sunit, I don't know if, if, if you were like this or not uh, throughout your earlier part of your career, but um, one of the biggest failures that I had on the lesson T very early on was – uh, and, and I'm going to use some example. I kind of put him out there in the beginning, but um, and, and again, I'm not saying this as a criticism to anyone. Um, but David Ledbetter, of course, was a, is a very technical teacher, and I tended to gravitate. I don't know if you did that or not uh, earlier on in your career, but I, I was a very technical teacher. You know, had to get the the points and you know point A to point B and all this very specific. And I found that it overcomplicated the process a little bit for me. Um, did you find that as well uh, with you? Were you a little bit uh, technical or are you a little bit more technical at times? I am not <clears throat> technical at all. And I think it's because, you know, when we're trying to get better, sometimes we can have elephant ears. And when you are yes. new to the game or you're seeking improvement, you can tend to be open. And golf is a game that it's a participation sport, and people that play it seem to think they can teach it, and they're very free in giving with their comments. So <clears throat> when you're young and you don't know what you're doing and you have elephant ears, you can tend to listen to, again, I call them the committee members. And one person's opinion right. is not always fact. So, you know, oh, well, you're doing this and you need to do that and this is what you should do and this is how you should do it. And you can get so confused that you don't know which end is up. And I have battled that my whole entire life. And right. therefore, I am committed to not teach that way. And so when someone's on my lesson tee, I'm going to say, okay, so – what, where was the face point at that time? I'm going to make them understand what they did with the club because it's the only way they're going to fix it. And I don't care if they take it outside or inside as long as the face comes back to square. And, again, depending on right. their, their goals, you know, if nobody's going to – if you're not going to hit balls and you're not going to practice, then we're not going to open up the box. You know, we're going to give you a Band-Aid so you can go play. On the other hand, if you want to compete and you want to, you know, win the club championship or the state amateur or the mid-am or the, you want to play on the LPGA Tour 
depending on the goal, determines how much we open the box up. So, um, yeah, I think you got to be very careful. And as a, if you're out there listening to us and you go to a lesson and everyone's telling you or the person that's teaching you is telling you everything you're doing wrong and how you have to be left yep. brain and be in a certain position, and I'm not going to bash any theories, but you cannot play golf on your left brain. You must play golf with your right brain. Now, you need to have a balance because you need to be able to plan shots, but you can't be standing over it thinking of 14 different positions. It will never, ever work, and you won't have any fun. You'll be exhausted. Yeah, and, and that, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and, you know, I certainly won't say that I was all that way in the beginning, but there were times I can remember. I can remember working with uh, a few students particularly um, that – you know, when you kind of learn something new yourself, you're kind of excited about it. And you want to sort of share that you're thinking you're doing uh, a good thing. And you get into, you know, sort of the, the methodology, if you will, of, of what you're discussing. And it's like a deer in headlights. They're looking at you like, what's this guy talking about? And I learned very quickly, fortunately for me, that that wasn't the way to go. Um, now, some there might be some instructors that are able, depending on the students they're working with, might be able to get away with that a little bit more. Uh, again, people know that David, and again, I'm not picking on him, but David Ledbetter has always been um, a very technical uh, instructor. You know, if you look at some of the students he's worked with, Nick Faldo as, as probably the prime example, uh, who was a very technically oriented uh, player, you know, that's fine. They knew what they were coming to, and they attract that individual uh, of, of type of player that wants that, that sort of learning, uh, um, you know, influence. But for the general population, that can be very detrimental to their game. It can make it very confusing and certainly can make it very um, unappealing to want to play the game because, it, you know, there's just too much stuff to remember. Like you said, you get out on the tee and you're thinking 13, 14 different things. Um, you're just not going to be able to, to uh, you know, accomplish uh, whatever goal you may have. And you're exactly right, if, Cindy, if you want to get out there and play a more competitive golf, then you've got to be willing to put in the time and the investment and the money uh, to be able to do that. If you're just, you know, a, a once-in-a-blue-moon type golfer, then, yeah, we can give you a Band-Aid and, and you know, go out and, and make the best of it. Uh, but if you want to be a more accomplished player, even if you don't want to play in a tour or, or necessarily win the club championship, but you just want to be a more accomplished player, then you need to put in the time uh, equally uh, in order to, to accomplish that. What about some of your, your biggest successes to date? Uh, what do you think went right? Uh, what were you doing uh, that you can recall specifically that uh, everything just sort of gelled for you? That I took a lesson or I gave a lesson? Gave, gave, sorry. You know, it's funny. It, it happens every day. And I think, I think it comes from communicating with the student. And again, it's our job to investigate who they are, how they learn, what they're looking for, and what might be missing. And, and if you do that, you'll get that look of, oh, my God, did I just hit that? And, and then you'll say to them, you know, well, what did you do? I have no idea. I said, well, we need to figure it out because otherwise I own your game and I don't want to own your game. I want you to own your game and you need to know what you're doing when you leave here. 
And and I think it's right. also making them realize that they're going to miss shots, but if they understand what they're doing, they can fix it. And they don't have to have a meltdown on the golf course. So I think it stems from really knowing your student and being passionate about what you do. Yeah. Because if you're not realistic in it yourself, the teacher being realistic and, and looking in the mirror and saying, am I really doing a good job here? I mean, in my opinion, there's an awful lot of people teaching golf that just want to do it to make some extra money. They're not invested right. in it. They're not passionate about it. It's like, you know what, just go home because you're ruining people. So. Yeah, and, and, and you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's good. You know, and, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with you uh, on that. I think you have to, you know, we, I've had a similar discussion uh, on a panel before about this very, very thing that you just mentioned. And, you know, there's, for instance, there's a lot of players that get out there, maybe uh, play some decent golf, and they think, you know what, I, I want to be a golf instructor. They know they're not good enough to make it out on a, on a tour or play in some sort of professional level, but they want to get out there and teach. But there's a certain skill as a teacher that you have to have. You have to, it's not something that you can get in a textbook or, or watch a bunch of videos and things like that. It, it's, it's a, literally a God-given talent. Um, you know, I can remember teachers in school. Um, some were very, very good teachers. They, they, they put you at ease. Um, they, there was just a, sort of an ebb and flow in, in the conversation. And then there were others that just got up there and they just read from a book and you just didn't feel like you absorbed anything. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, God love them. There's, there are a number of people that get into this profession that, you know, certainly do have a passion. They want to do it, but they don't maybe necessarily have the skill set to, to do that. Now, um, maybe they could be good in a different area and still be part of this profession, but I think that you have to be honest with yourself, and this is where a self-assessment, I think, is important. And you know, and you need to, to do that every so often. You can't just do it once and say, okay, well, I've assessed myself, and I think, okay, yeah, I'm going to be a golf teacher, and I'm going to get out there. You've got to, as you go along, you've got to be continually assessing yourself and saying, is this for me? Am I really doing my students justice? Are they, are they learning from me? Are they getting something uh, out of this? Uh, or, or, I'm, or am I just doing it because it sounds good on my resume and I can brag to my buddies and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a golf pro. Um, so, I mean, you have to be honest with yourself first and foremost. And there are some out there. You know, I'm going to give you, the, um, be very candid, one of the biggest examples I see this. And, Cindy, I, I know you probably don't sit and read them all the time, as I don't either. But, you know, you get into social media, particularly Facebook. There's a lot of different golf forums. And some particularly I've – I've watched as I've, you know, perused around on Facebook and some of the dialogue gets extremely heated and you can tell by just the responses who the more, um, and I hate to use this word professional professionals are from the ones that just sort of think they're, they're a know-it-all and they think they know everything and they've heard a few, you know, buzzwords or what have you, and they just throw it out there. And I'm sure you've witnessed it as well. And that's why I don't get into it. I don't dive into it because I don't want to get into this he said, she said uh, type thing. But am I right on that assumption that, that, you know, that there's those out there that really want everybody to think they know something, but maybe they really are not in the profession they need to be? 
Well, I'm not going to judge, but I'm going to tell you that, um, again, I don't worry about what other teachers think of me. I worry about what my students think of me. So I don't even look at those forums because I know that if I'm willing to look in the mirror myself and reveal the truth and expose my own elephants, that my students will let me know whether or not I'm doing a good job. And and they'll do that by coming to more... <clears throat> lessons. So right. I'm not, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I just let my students decide. Yeah. And, and, and that's, a, that's really the, the way you have to look at it. Um, you know, I think that going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about different theories and things like that, you know, if, if that's what you're comfortable with and there's a specific theory or, or um, a method out there that, that you subscribe to, there's nothing wrong with that as long as um, you recognize that not everybody is going to necessarily fit into that one box. So it's going to be maybe a little bit more specialized. But because each, as we know, Cindy, each and every student uh, and individual out there is individual and we have to treat them that way. Uh, not everybody learns the same way as we all know, and not everybody is going to adapt to, um, you know, the, the things that we're teaching them as quickly as somebody else might. So we have to be a little more patient with some. Uh, and also there's going to be students out there that learn very quickly and can absorb a lot of material. So we want to make sure that we're not, you know, dragging our, our heels uh, with those students either, that we want to make sure that we're keeping them well informed and and updated as as things come up. But uh, and I and just to go back uh, about the the forums that I don't watch them a lot either. But you know every once in a while you know you'll be putting something in there and a, a message will pop up and there'll be a string of about a hundred people, you know, just going back and forth, back and forth, talking about the the most mundane things. And it really makes me sad sometimes, Cindy, to see that because they're really doing themselves a dis- disservice. Because they're putting a message out there um, that you know it, it's okay to, to uh, it's it's good to uh, I guess agree to disagree from time to time, but do it in a manner that's not um, aggressive. I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, the last question I want to ask very quickly, and I know we've kind of touched on this uh, probably a few times before, but um, there's been a lot of advancements in club and ball technology and uh, I mean, a host of gadgets out there, Cindy, that are um, as long as both my legs and and then some, Um, in your honest opinion, why aren't golf scores going down despite all of these uh, technical technological advances? Because someone has to swing the club. (laughs) (laughs) I like that simple answer. <laughs> that goes um, back to that mirror, dear. The mirror, the mirror. <laughs> and again, you know, what do you expect someone to shoot? They can't shoot a gazillion under par. I mean, once once in a while you get it, but that's what golf. You know, other words were taken. They called it golf, but it's torture. Um, but yeah, the scores aren't going way down. Some people are really improving, but you have to invest right. in this game. You can't just go out and think. Yeah. Oh, the club's going to do the job for me. You know, remember when those clubs came out and said, oh, this is going to make you hook it? Well, no, it's not. <laughs> because you no. don't know how to swing it to make it. 
I, right, I right. And, and, the bigger bad news, but it, it all boils down to guess who's holding the club. Right, and, and that's that's exactly true. And I know we've talked about this before, you know, before Cindy, with you know, with respect to uh, whether it be a game improvement clubs or or you know, getting more distance out of the club. It's the person on the other end that's going to dictate whether or not that's going to be a reality. Um, and, and you know, again. It, let me just preface this this whole conversation, or, or not preface, but I guess um, close it out with, with mm-hmm. this comment. Um, you know, we're not here to to try and and say that you know because one person subscribes to this uh, technique or or uh, uh, swing theory or what have you uh, is wrong, uh, or that clubs can't certainly give you an advantage. But we want the consumers and the listeners out there particularly that are tuning into our show each week, we want you to understand that we're here to help you, not just on the show, but individually in, in both of our teaching careers um, and, and the many other thousands and thousands of men and women in, in uh, the golf profession. But we want you to be a smart consumer and realize that if somebody's saying, well, if you, you buy this, I'm going to guarantee you this, 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 and this, that's just, that's just not true. Um, it can help, but you need to have certain uh, certain understanding and a certain ability uh, to be able to get the most out of it. And if somebody's selling you that theory or that as, as a, a go-to uh, philosophy or a go-to product or a go-to club or whatever and guaranteeing you something, that's just not the case. And we want to make sure, you know, I, I, Cindy, and I'm sure you would agree with this, we want people to get out and have fun in this game. And there has been a period of time, it, it's certainly changing, but there was a period of time where a lot of people were not having fun. And um, I think it's because it was becoming too technical, um, too uh, you know, gadget-driven and technology-driven, and I think people just got frustrated. And I think we need to go back a little bit more to the basics. And, and somebody that was on the show last Thursday raised a very interesting point and talked about, you know, golfers that um, maybe are, are up in age, you know, maybe they're in their mid to late 60s, they're still out there having fun and playing. We as golf stru- instructors have to recognize that we to spend all of our time on the practice tee trying to get that person to hit it farther uh, and, and make drastic changes in that individual's golf swing is a waste of their time. We need to focus on areas that they can see improvement on around the putting green, the chipping or the, or the pitching area and, and things like that areas where they're going to be able to score better. If you've got somebody that's been playing golf for 40 years, unless they are so mechanically challenged, um, you're not going to make them improve a great deal. They've been doing it for a long time. They don't have the physical stamina that they once did in their twenties or even thirties. So for us to spend 90% of our time trying to fix and change all of that, is doing them, in my opinion, a disservice. I don't know if you agree with that or not, and I don't mean that you can't certainly do some things to help, but I notice even with my own game, I'm 53 years old. I don't hit it as far as I used to. So for me, what I try to do is it's more maintenance. It's not trying to increase anymore. It's maintaining what I currently have. Do you agree with that or or understand what I'm getting at? Yes, I do. And again, you know, you can't you can't really perform a miracle and you're going to get old and you're going to hit it shorter, but you can still enjoy the game. 
And if you're smart enough to right. move up to the shorter tees, then you, that's what, exactly what you should do. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, on that note, um, Cindy, we're going to, uh, in just a moment here, I'm just going to introduce our, our guest um, this morning, and then uh, we'll bring her on, and we'll have a great discussion. Uh, we've had this uh, young lady on before, uh, Kate Tempesta. She's the founder, partner, and president of FUN, uh, a member of the LPJ's teacher and club professional, uh, also the director of the junior golf program at Montauk Downs. And as a leading junior golf professional in New York City, Kate's groundbreaking curriculum combines golf basics with activities that extend and enrich learning in an environment that is both fun and challenging uh, for children of all ages. Uh, she embraces the LPJ's holistic view of uh, the golfer as well as Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence. Uh, she takes into account individual learning styles, group dynamics, and ability levels, and uh, seems to be able to know how to make the most out of every learning experience. As a leading expert in the golf industry, she has spoken at several uh, panels about growing the game of golf, including the inaugural PGA of America Junior Golf Summit, uh, the National Golf Course Owners Association Annual Conference, and the 2014 PGA Youth and, and Family Summit, and uh, several section uh, events. Um, she has presented uh, to PGM students at both Penn State University and Florida Gulf Coast University. So, Cindy, let's welcome our, our very special guest, or welcome back, should I say, uh, Kate Tempesta. Good morning, my friend. Hello, Mama. How are you, honey? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. Whenever I'm talking to Cindy and Ted, I'm great. Well, good. Yeah. So, tell well, thank me. you. Yeah. We love having we you. Love Cindy, you. you. Yeah. Um. So, it, you know what? You're kind of an old hippie, and I really. <laughs> admire that about you you're very open and cool and i love your perspective on life and teaching especially children i think you were born for this and our audience may not know that but i want to know what do you mean by growing children instead of the game um gosh we only have what a half hour yeah what I mean, what do I mean? Yes. I mean that children are just the most, they're the most amazing creatures. So to simply put them in a box and say, hey, we're going to teach you anything. You can, you can substitute golf or soccer or basketball or arithmetic or history or creative movement that I used to teach. But if we put these children in a box and just say we're going to teach them those skills, we're, we're missing out on 99% of who they are. Um, and so unless we bring in to whatever lesson and whatever environment we're trying to create for them to discover, um, unless we're bringing in a very whole child approach to that learning environment, we're, we're just missing the boat. Um, and I hear way too often in the junior golf world, well, we have to keep it fun. We have to keep it fun. I mean, that's a no-brainer at this point, right, people? We have to keep it fun. And that, and that should go way beyond children. Sure. We need, to, we need to keep the game fun, and we need to keep the way that we teach and the way we allow our students to discover the game, we need to keep it fun, which is why I love Cindy so much because, you know, we can go on and on about how her learning environment is just super awesome. But children are, as any other human being is, have so much more to their personalities and their developmental um, domains, right? And so if we simply just say, okay, we've got to keep it fun, I'm just so sick of hearing that because what is fun? Let's break that down. And I, and I use this, use this example all the time, but just 
there's so many things that are not fun for a five-year-old that are fun for an eight-year-old. And that could be a game that's sort of laid out that might be too competitive. So the eight-year-old might be very ready for that. It might be very healthy as far as their emotional development and where they are physically and socially and cognitively. But it might not be fun for a five-year-old. I'll give you another example on a very simple example of how we could turn on and turn off golfers. Um, I learned this lesson years ago when I was creating a game called Monster Mouth Putting, and it was taking a snag hoop and putting the balls into it. And I was playing with my five- and six-year-olds. It was around Halloween. We were drawing teeth in the monsters, and they were having a ball. And what I loved about the game so much Mm. is that they were identifying different colors of the, you know, the snag golf balls, and we were asking, you know, what do you want to feed the monster? So So if it got into the snag hoop club, great. The monster loved it. If it didn't, it's okay. The monster just didn't like blueberries. Well, I delivered that game a few days later after it being a hit. I delivered it to a slightly younger group, and, and they were all terrified. They were terrified that it was a monster, right? And so I, here I am, an early childhood yeah. educator of, of many, 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 many years, thinking that I'm, you know, the expert in understanding developmental differences. Well, that was a really big learning experience for me. You know, I better tune in a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, we turned it into Feed Birdie, and the, bird, and the snag hoop clock became Birdie's Nest. Birdie is my mascot. And so that was a very non-threatening game for them. And just that simple change. Right. Um, and, and, and that, you know, that really speaks to how are we creating a nurturing environment? How are we creating a non-threatening environment? How are we creating an environment that, that, is, um, that really caters to the needs of wherever the child is developmentally. And then you throw in the variable of teaching groups of kids. And then that's where the true magic happens, you know, where you've got 12 different personalities. They're all around the same age. So you kind of know, you know, what games you're going to deliver, but you might have a child that's really super shy and afraid to transition. You might have a child that, that, you know, can't separate from their parents. And so how are you, what measures are you taking to, to create that environment that, that feeds them, that nurtures them. And so I think when you have those ingredients, you can teach children anything. You can create a learning environment in whatever discipline it is. And that's why I believe wholeheartedly that more and more people that work with children in PGA and the LPGA world need to understand childhood development. Early childhood development, childhood development goes way beyond the three to six-year-olds. Understand what makes an eight-year-old tick. Understand what makes a seven-year-old tick. Understand what makes a nine, a 10, 11, 12. Understand what a 13-year-old girl is, is going through. I mean, my God, I would never want to go back to being a 13-year-old girl. And if I'm a golf professional, I'm just shoving grip, stance, aim, and posture down their throat. Well, guess what? And more times than not, it, it just ain't going to work, right? So it might be putting the clubs down and mm-hmm. – just being there for the child and listening to them. And, and I just, I think that that's where all the magic happens. And I truly believe that if we invest in that, our return on that investment further down the line will be much more. So, Kate, so that's, uh, which yeah. you are totally yeah, I, I, right. I agree. And, and, you know, Cindy, yeah. What I'm, what concerns me is that how Go many ahead, of please. us are not doing the right thing and what can you do for us to help us do you have a system that we can purchase, that we can get certified? Tell us how we can stop making so many mistakes. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, so the short answer to that is that I'm working with this platform called Teachable where I'm going to be able to create multiple classes of, um, you know, information. Um, you know, it used to be that you could license the curriculum, and I would go and I would train the coaches and 
And I've done that in a couple of different situations. But the reality is that shove my methods down someone else's throat for a big package because you might be really good at A, B, and C, but maybe you need a little bit more help with D, E, and F. And D, E, and F could be a short class on classroom management. It could be a class on movement <coughs> activities to keep children engaged. It could be, it could be, hey, how do I deliver games to a three-year-old? How do I create the environment specifically to a three-year-old? So I'm, I'm working my tail off to get those courses out there. But I also would love to know from people in, in the world of golf and parents and um, other coaches, of, even other, um, other sports, right, what, what do you need? Because I, I, I am happy to create that course and share what goes on here at Urban Golf Academy every single day of the year um, and, and how we create a learning environment that retains kids for five, six, seven years, eight years. And then I say bye-bye to them and hope that, you know, the next person that comes their way is, is, is maintaining that through line. Um, so the short answer is stay tuned for the teachable.com. Um, the long answer is I would love feedback on what you all want, and I will create courses specifically for that. Um, they, it could be my metaphors that I use with the three- to seven-year-olds. They're very powerful metaphors. We call them birdieisms. They teach all of the fundamentals of golf. We just They're, they're fun words. They're fun metaphors that um, instead of saying posture, uh, we use a metaphor that really resonates with the children and they can relate to that gets them in the right posture. We talk about how we line up to targets, and instead of using the word aim and alignment, we, 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 we have tricks that, that, again, really resonate with the kids. And, and those, are, those are going to be available via te- uh, teachable.com as well. So stay tuned. So let I me, need to ask you. Hang on. Let me ask okay. you. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Give me a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> yep. So how would you want people to tell you what they need? They can email me directly at kate at ktuga.com. They can Facebook me. Um, I have both my, my business Facebook page, which is literally Kate Tempest's Urban Golf Academy, um, and then my private page. And, um, you know, I post a ton of, things on Facebook, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to start keeping all of my content um, in some of these teaching forums just so that I can start to make sense of it all and deliver sort of the whole package. Um, but yeah, email me directly. Um, we've got great stuff. We've got, you know, we, if, if somebody wants a birthday party, hey, how do I deliver a birthday party? I've got a birthday party curriculum for three, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. Birthday parties are a great way to get multiple children engaged in the game of golf and, and market yourself, market your program. Get that one yeah. kid that loves your program, loves coming to golf, and invite 10 of their friends to a golf birthday party and charge them money, and then you're getting paid marketing. You're getting paid to market your program. So kids that would otherwise not choose golf because either no one in their family is a golfer or they've never had interest, well, hey, deliver this super fun curriculum, and guess what? You're going to get 10 kids engaged in golf, and they might just want to – Go to your next program if you have one. What so do get you ready. say to the sign on? Get ready. What do you say to the parent who might play golf and is a driven control freak perfectionist that might say to you, "I don't think they're learning anything," or "You're yeah. not teaching them how to do the grip." I mean, I yeah. hate the parents that hover over me that like, "Wait, is, is his grip okay?" I'm like, "Will you stop?" We just need yeah. to swing and have some fun here. So how yeah. do you how do you handle that? 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's education, right? I mean, I talk to them about my philosophy of how I believe that a playful learning environment for ages seven and under, eight and under, it, it creates deeper learning and how play is a very serious mode of learning. I give them examples. Um, I, it's a matter of educating them, giving them the birdieisms. Um, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, it, 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 first of all, if, if parents if parents don't like it and, and they're continuously fighting me on that, then, then there's clearly another program for them, and I'm not afraid to say that. Otherwise, I let them sit and observe, and they see the difference. You know, they see the engagement. If I'm sitting here telling Johnny, you got to do this with your grip, this and this, rather than just say, hey, you know what, let's try your hands or best friend. Let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. See what works for you. That's the non-threatening environment that's going to keep them coming back. And as their physical, physical uh, domain develops, then all of that te- technique will follow, right? So I just try to stray away from what's going on physically and then talk to them about, hey, you know, accentuate what's going on socially, accentuate what's going on emotionally. Like, look at him. He just hit the target with a cross-handed grip, and he just thinks he won the Masters. That is inspiring him to continue with the game. And as he continues with the game and gets old enough and he's cognitively available to things like how you hold it with a 10-finger grip and interlocking and posture, when he's cognitively ready for that and physically that's matching, then he's ready. But there's so many other things to be working on right now and allowing him to play and discover through the physical realm is exactly where we want them. And that's what's going to keep coming back. They're going to keep coming back to that joyful, connected place, and eventually those physical skills are going to uh, develop. And before you know it, you've got a lifelong golfer, or you've got a golfer that drops out for a few years, goes, plays other sports as they're supposed to, they sample other things, and then they come back. And that's the return on investment I'm talking about. I'm okay letting kids go. I typically, when I see three-year-olds, I see them until they're seven, eight years old. And then they go and they try other things. And that's awesome. They should be doing that. But my, I can't wait for 20 years down the road when I get some, some person, some kid back from business school that says, you know what, I took this golf class in business school and now I'm, I'm out playing with, you know, Goldman Sachs group or, or, hey, I went away with my grandparents on vacation. I mean, I can't wait to hear those stories. And if I had something to do with that between the ages of three and seven, I just think that that return on investment, it's not instant gratification. You might not get that kid that's going to the U.S. Kids Golf Tournaments and playing through the World Championship and playing every Sunday and Saturday and taking lessons forever. But you're going to get somebody that, truly truly enjoys the game on a deep level and and that eventually i think you're going to see more rounds of golf you're going to see more lessons you're going to see more you know i would love to do that longitudinal study on creating that environment and seeing where it takes us um very well said kate and and i agree 100 percent you know it I'm going to take it just a step further. You know, you, you talk about if their you know, if their grip isn't uh, quite perfect, uh, that's okay. And I agree with that. You know, if you look over history at some of the earlier players in golf, they kind of adopted their own style. I mean, there were certain fundamentals obviously that were key uh, that, that were necessary to make them good golfers. But um, if you look at the range, both men and women over the last 50 years, there were a lot of different golf styles out there on the golf course. They learned a certain way. They learned certain fundamentals, of course, um, but their grip wasn't all the same as one another. And I think one of the dangers in today's uh, golfing environment is, um, or at least has been for a while, that we're trying to pigeonhole everybody into the same uh, way of thinking. And as you pointed out, one person might 
gravitate to, to this a little bit better. And, and as you gave a great example of the different ages of kids, you know, you, you played a game where, uh, you know, there was a monster involved uh, and you made it fun and it was great for one group, but the other group were terrified. And that's the same thing even with adults. Um, some adults can get out there and, and kind of get their, you know, dive in, get their hands and feet wet, and others have to be nurtured along a little bit more. So, you know, we have to be very careful that we don't get anybody. I, I want to go back to something that you had said and, and you know, you talked about uh, with parents and, and Cindy asked you the question, you know, sort of hovering over. Um, Kate, give us some questions that you think parents should be asking before they put, uh, and I mean asking of you or asking of, of me or Cindy or other professionals before they put their kids into any program. What are questions that they should be asking? Um. I mean, some of the more obvious ones are student-teacher ratios. What are some of the backgrounds of these teachers? Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, what what other things do you focus on besides besides golf, besides golf fundamentals? Like, how are you creating an engaging environment? Um, what is an engaging environment? Um, I, w- I would tune into how they're talking to the kids. I mean, at, that's that's the real telling sign for me is listening to the speak of coaches to children. Um, you know, in Central Park, we coach alongside multiple different sports programs and, and listening to some of the coaches is, it's tough. Um, and listening to the way the parents talk to the kids. I mean, just yeah. I was on the beach the other day and this little girl was doing some cartwheels for her dad and, and clearly they were coming up with this like grading system and she couldn't have been more than five and a half, six years old. And she stuck her landing, and he said, yeah, where your balance wasn't good. And, you know, it's it's like a simple thing that might not scar her in the long run, but, like, the more and more we hear that from a coach or a parent or a teacher, I think the more and more it does. I mean, we don't want to push children down. We want to, we want to rise them up. We want to elevate them, especially in today's world where there's so much hate and there's so much just yucky stuff going on. Um, I, yeah. I, I would listen to the way the coaches speak to the kids, and is it positive? Are they using – semantics that empower children versus disempower or tell them, you know, that coaches shouldn't be telling kids what to do. Coaches should be guiding kids as to what they can do. And, and, and I think there's a huge distinction. So if I were a parent, if I were talking to another parent and they were researching a program, I would hang around and listen to the coaches. Yeah, I think that's a great way. Um, obviously, uh, I think I know the answer to this question. Uh, too much pressure for kids to perform in the golf course, uh, and I think obviously um, we see that in some of the junior programs out there. Kate, I'm sure you've experienced it uh, yourself, watching others. Um, are, are we putting too much pressure on kids to, to get them to develop? And, and just like you pointed out with the father, you know, sort of nitpicking on, on something that's really not relevant. Is, is there just too much pressure for these kids and it's causing them to, to stray away from the game? A thousand percent. There's too much pressure on these kids in anything that they do. There's so much pressure in this world. <laughs> There's so much pressure. I mean, it just it's a whole different topic, yeah. right? Social media and, and the computers and the digital world and how right. that's putting pressure. And so many kids are experiencing anxiety because they're so disconnected. They're so connected to their digital world that they're disconnected from the real world. And they're placing a ton of anxiety on these kids. I always, you know, just reminded me of something that we were talking about earlier and what I would say to a parent. I would ask the parent to put themselves in the shoes of their child. It's as simple as that. I mean, I had some great advice from, I had a wonderful mentor in early childhood. She was the director of the nursery school that I was at for 10 years. And something that has stuck with me forever is 
when she would conference with parents and parents would come and ask, well, why can't they, you know, why can't they do this or they're not doing that or how can we do that better? And she would just sort of have them take a breath and slow down and say, hey, they've been walking on this earth for 24 months. You know, like, so she's conferencing with a three-year-old, let's say. Um, then for 24 months out of those three years, they've been exploring this world on their feet. That's it. You're 42 years old and you're trying to project onto this little creature, right? So she says it in a much sexier way, yeah. a more diplomatic way. But, like, I think that, hey, 42-year-old, put yourself in the mindset of a 13-year-old boy, right? Think of the pressure that's on him yeah. now. Think of all of this going on in his life and that he is a human being behind that golf club. And just see, like, if a little bit more empathy comes in, you know? I, I, I mean, that, that's it, yeah. right? I think the best coaches have a ton of empathy and they connect to their audience really well. Um, and I think coaching is a privilege. So awesome. Exactly. I agree. So what can parents do um, to help their kids avoid burnout? Um, <laughs> is that another topic to too? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hey, listen to them, right? Talk to them. Yeah. Um, just make it a yeah, – just communicate. Communication is a lost art. Listening is a lost part of communication. Just listen to your kids. They've got a lot to say. Um, yeah. Let them, like, let them, let them, like, fuel other passions. I don't care what it is. You know, if they're, if they're passionate in ballet, fuel that. doesn't mean they're going to become a ballerina. Just fuel it because passion is a lost art in this world, and, and we need more passionate people, so... If they're not passionate about golf, let's go out and try something different. First of all, communicate. Second of all, tune into what they like. Fuel it without expectation, right, if you can. I mean, obviously there's money attached to that a lot of times. But, sure. you know, connection, connection is key. Connection is key on any level, whether it's connection to your mom and dad, connection to your family, connection to your coach, connection. Like true connection, empathy and connection is where it's at in my mind. Yeah, and I, and I think also too, Kate. I think there's no greater way to build resentment in a child than to pressure them to do something that maybe they don't want to do because you know you've had this grand old vision of being you know the next LPGA star and you want your daughter to do the same. So you're now pressuring that child uh, to perform. And of course, any good child wants to please their parent. And I think this is the danger that's happened uh, with a lot of these youngsters out there is, again, they're getting sort of pigeonholed into a box. And if, if, the, if the parents aren't recognizing that and not allowing the, the child to sort of come to them and say, hey, you know, I'd like to try that or, you know, that looks kind of interesting. Can I, you know, give it a whirl, so to speak? Um, and it's coming the other way. The, the, you're not going to see success. The child's going to resent it. They're going to become bitter about it and they're not going to enjoy it. And more than likely are, are going to shy away from it in the future, even later in life. And, and you're exactly right. You know, we need to put ourselves in that youngsters, um, uh, you know, body, if you will, and, and imagine how we would feel uh, if we were three or four or five years old or even 13 years old. Um, so yeah. you're exactly right. I think that, that we have to listen. We have to honor their process, too. I mean, right? Failure is part of it. Failure is part of it. If, if Johnny wants to take two months off because he's more into girls at that point rather than playing golf, let him do that. That's all part of the process. 
if his studies fail or if his chipping technique goes lower, like that, that, that's all part of the process. Let them be who they are, meet them where they're at, and understand and honor that it's their process. It's about them. It's not about you. Um, and I, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can't, <laughs> I, right. I, I, I don't, I don't know how I would be. I would like to think that I'd be able to hold that mirror up to myself and say, okay, you know what, this is little mini Kate's deal. And she's, she's got to be in it and I can nurture her and I can help her and support her through the process, but it's ultimately her process. Right. And mistakes, well, are, mistakes you know, like, are good and you know, all that stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, Cindy, I know you probably have a, another question or two that you want to get in, or, or are you good? Well, you know what? I'm pretty good here. I just, I think you are a gift, and I think mm-hmm. you're an advocate for children, and it is so important that we all become aware of this, the poor kids because their parents yeah. are killing them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some yeah, good parenting you know, out there. there. There's some good parenting out there, and it's magic to watch. I love seeing. I saw a good dad on the subway the other day, and I went up to him and I told him, you know, the way he guided his child through this experience, and oh god, it was just—it's so awesome to watch. When you see a good teacher, or a good coach, or a good parent, it's it's magical. Yeah. So there's some you know, good ones. You know, yeah, and there, there's no doubt. I I think it's just. A lot of times, and I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I think really uh, a lot of parents that get too um, uh, aggressive are, are really trying to live their own dreams through their children. They're looking at their own failures. They're looking at their own, and they and they don't want their child to go down that same path. So, so come you know, heck or high water, they're going to do whatever's necessary to navigate that child through life and not let them learn on their own. And, you know, the more often than not, they're going to end up navigating them into those same failures if they're not careful. So you're right. You need to let the child grow. You need to let, and golf is a great game because it does mimic. There's so many things on the golf course. Cindy, I know you can attest to as a player um, that mimic life um, that a child can learn, but they have to be given that opportunity to learn it on their, at their own time, at their own pace um, and you're right. There's so many good things. I think one of the, and I'm just going to add one thing to what you were talking about at the very beginning about, you know, uh, Cindy had asked you uh, along the lines about, you know, certifications, things like that. And it, uh, Cindy, it goes to what I, I said in the very beginning of our conversation. And, and that is, there's a lot of great teachers, uh, a lot of great, you know, instructors out there, but maybe not everybody is going to be cut out to teach children. Um, you know, Kate, I know you've done a fantastic job. I know there's some other great uh, professionals around the country here um, that, you know, Nicole Weller, I know is a friend of yours. Um, she does a great job in, in her uh, coaching that, but they have a unique gift in that area. Not all of us are going to be gifted in that area. We may have a gift somewhere else. Um, so just to go out there and, and say, well, I want to teach kids, you need to make sure that you understand that it's different than teaching your adult students. Am I correct on that? Well, yeah, and you also want to look outside the golf world, depending on your age. I mean, I just put out a job posting today for golf coaches for the 2017 fall season, and, you know, there wasn't any golf instructor verbiage in there. It was was all about the characteristics that I think make a great teacher at that age. Um, So I think for certain ages, it's looking outside of the golf world, hands down. I mean, I have 15 independent contractors, and two of them are – 
PGA or former PGA, an LPGA. I have one LPGA yeah. that teaches one, one class a week for me and then a former PGA that teaches like five classes a week. Everybody else is in creative arts, educational services. Mm-hmm. Some of them are avid golfers. Some of them never played golf before. But, man, I tell you, I go and I watch them and they rock a class of 10 four-year-olds, like rock it. Yeah. So, well, you know, again, I think it goes, that. Yeah, it go, goes to having a gift. Yeah, it goes to they've got a gift that they're able to communicate with those children in such a way. And, and once you have that gift, you can pretty much inject any, uh, whether golf or something else. Um, and, and they're going to be able to, as you say, rock it. Um, but if you don't have that talent or gift and you try to interject whatever the topic happens to be, um, it, it's kind of like water and oil. They're just not going to mix well. So, um, you have to pay, pay a specific attention to that. Um, Kate, unfortunately, our, our half an hour is up, but uh, very interesting conversation. Um, do you want to uh, take a moment and just let the folks listening to the show that maybe want to reach out and, and learn more about some of the programs that you have uh, to offer, where they can go about finding you? Yeah, well, absolutely. They can email me, as I said earlier, kate at com. That's Kate Tempest's Urban Golf Academy. Face, like me on Facebook. I post a lot of information um, our website, simply ktuga.com, has got a lot of blogs on there about how I, how I teach children and some of my experiences over the years. Um, and as I said earlier, I'm really excited about being able to, to um, share with the masses what we do here. Most, most powerfully, I think, is, are the birdieisms. And I think hopefully Cindy can attest to that. She got to see some of them back in March but, um, or April maybe. Um, but the birdieism, really powerful metaphors that anybody, parents, coaches, non-golfers, golfers, anybody can deliver to children between the ages of three and seven to teach them the fundamentals of the game. And you know what? On that note, I use it with my older kids out in Montauk. They love the birdieisms. They still use them. So, again, powerful metaphors to teach the fundamentals <laughs> and create a super fun and empowering environment. And that will be available very soon. You're the best, girly. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah. Love you guys. <laughs> All right. Well, Kate, thank you very much for joining us this morning on the Women of Golf, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. And and just go out and and uh, have a great day, and and help those kids uh, just in, enjoy and have fun. We're gonna go rock it right now in New York City. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Kate. You too. All, All right. right. Bye bye. All right. That was our very special guest. Uh, guest, excuse me, Kate Tempesta. Uh, from New York City, and and as she said, she's going out to Rocket this morning. Uh, great, just a you know, I, I really like a lot of what she says, Cindy, and and I know we've talked you know about similar things here, um, and I know we only have a moment left, and then we got to close out. But um, I, I I think she raises a very valid point. You've mentioned this many many times. You know, people really have to sort of own their game, and it's not what we want; it's helping them find what they want. Um, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's what we're going to do today uh, as we journey out uh, in life and, and help others out in the golf course. We're going to try and help them find their game. Um, and on that note, we want to take this opportunity one more time to thank Kate Tempesta for joining us this morning on the Women of Golf Show. And 
as we always say here on the program, we want to thank all of the listeners as well from around the world for faithfully tuning into the broadcast each and every week. So spread the message. Go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash women of golf and you can catch us every tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m eastern uh also find us on itunes.com and stitcher.com just type in women of golf in the search key and you can find us there as well love to hear from you reach out to cindy at cindymillergolf.com or me ted.golftalklive at gmail.com and until then on behalf of cindy miller i'm ted odorico thank you for joining us this morning on women of golf we look forward to helping you again next week here on the women of golf show god bless everybody and have a great week thank you as always cindy Bye-bye.